I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about Puck, the new journalism platform, and how they report on D.C., Hollywood, Silicon Valley, and Wall Street, we have with us Tara Palmieri, who is the senior political correspondent for the subscription news platform Puck. Previously, Tara was a White House correspondent at ABC News and served as chief national correspondent at Politico. She's hosted terrific podcasts, the Sony Music Podcast, Broken, Seeking Justice, and Power, the Maxwells. And she's also the host of a new documentary, which we're going to get into talking about in just a couple minutes. Tara, welcome to the podcast. So great to have you here. Thanks for having me, Andrew. I'm so happy to be here. It's been a while since the, I think it's been my, since my first year covering the Trump beat. I was on with you and Bob Schufer. That's exactly right. We When we were doing about the news and that was, I remember, you know, you and the crew at Politico were some of the most important interviews Bob and I did, which eventually became part of our book, you know, Overload. And so it's really great to have you back. Thanks for having me. And it's also great to talk because, you know, you're part of this new, and it's new to a lot of people. It's not exactly new to me, but I'm a new subscriber because I can't get enough of it. Puck, this new type of journalism you're doing. Can you tell me about Puck and why you joined and you know what's going on over there? So Puck is a new sort of vision of journalism in which we journalists own a piece of the company. We're partners, we have equity, and we're creators in it, and we're partners. And the best part about it is that it's like a small group, but it's kind of like individuals who own that beat and own their topic as, you know, they are experts in what they know. Like Peter Hamby is a political genius and he does our podcasting for us. Julia Yaffe is like the go-to person on all things Ukraine and Russia. Tina Nguyen has really, really penetrated the right of the Republican Party. Matt Bellany is all, you know, Hollywood knows the ins and outs of the studios and the executives and got Silicon Valley covered and donors. And so, and I um, am covering that sotto voce, the the quiet voice (laughs) inside Washington. I call it the Washington Mall because, you know, it's, there's obviously a Washington Mall, but it's a very neat and orderly place, Washington, but also very transactional. And I'm kind of covering the players behind the principles and also the principles themselves, but I'm just trying to tell people the inside story. And it can be challenging in the sense that I don't want to come off as a cynic, but I do think that this is a corporate town. There's a game that's played. There are considerations that are not necessarily ever made public, but I think there's a space for this kind of quiet voice and and telling that story. And so that's, that's sort of my That's been my goal. And I do think it's also a space that's open right now in the media. So fill it away, right? Uh (laughs) For sure. So, you know, this is a very Bob Schieffer-like question, but I have to ask you, why did you guys decide to call it Puck? Some people might think that's like a hockey magazine. Oh, I know. I love it. So Puck is a character in A Midsummer's Night's Dream. Remember Puck is- Of course. Yeah. He's a devilish kind of character. And we have a bit of a devilish streak about us. Like we're kind of trying to be like, you know, the punks, the cool kids. We're not necessarily trying to get access. You know, I'd rather tell you the story about what's happening 
in the highest level of the West Wing without having to worry about getting an interview with the president. And it's just a different style of journalism. Like, you know, when you're a broadcast journalist, which I've been before, I was a White House correspondent for ABC. So it's so important to have that access, the bookings, the ability to confirm things on a moment's notice for broadcast. But with Puck, it's almost like a magazine and an ability to kind of like write what you know and what you want to tell the audience in a kind of more intimate way without the pressure of matching, you know, CBS News or the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. Like, in fact, it's okay if what I'm writing is not written about in any of those places. I think it adds more to the conversation in some ways. Well, so one of the things that really strikes me about reading it is that when I'm reading you, I really feel like I'm having a conversation with you. And I don't feel like that when I read necessarily other, you know, publications that come out of Washington coverage, I feel like you're having a conversation with your readers. And, you know, obviously you and I know each other, but like when I read Julia Ioffe, who's a legend in national security reporting, and I don't know Julia very well, like I feel like I'm hearing her voice too, and certainly Peter's, and it feels very inside baseball in a good way that like we're learning, we're having a conversation with you all, the expert reporters, and it's really, you know, based on your sourcing. And it feels like a you're sitting around a table at an embassy, you know, having a conversation with a group of people who really know what they're talking about. I love hearing that. That's exactly what we want, Andrew, is like we want you to feel like you're at the table with us and all of our sources. Yesterday, you know, I was struggling with my boss. I'm like, what hasn't been written about Roe versus Wade yet? You know, I'm sure. like, seriously, I'm like, it's Monday. What hasn't been written about it? And he's like, Tara, you've talked to literally everyone in town in the past day or two. Like, just write what you know. Tell us yeah. what those people are saying and what what's the, the inside talk on this? And I was like, you know what? You're right. And I was like, I don't even know how to arrange all these. Like, just write it in like bullet point, whatever, Put number it. And sometimes it's just like, we're so constrained as journalists by AP style and what we learn in journalism school in a lot of ways. Sure. That actually, like, if you think of it truly as a letter to Washington, not a letter from Washington, which is like what a lot of the magazines do, then like you're kind of able to have that inside conversation. Like, I assume that like when you read my pieces, I don't have to say future speaker of the house, Kevin McCarthy. I can just say Kevin McCarthy and you know exactly why him getting yep. 35 extra votes or 20 votes. Like there's a level of sophistication that I assume for my readers. And while that might make it a smaller audience, I also feel like if they're following the day to day, they become experts themselves. And they're kind of smarter on the inside talk that people are having. There's no question about that. And I think, and it comes through, I, you know, I was struck in reading your reporting yesterday about Roe because I thought the same thing. I was like, okay, well, what what is Tara going to write about? And then I learned that there's, a lot of things that you might not think the way people feel in both parties about this decision, you know, you, you might think it's very black and white. You know, one side is excited about it. The other side's not happy, whatever. But you pointed out there's a lot of nuance. Right. The timing was really hard for Democrats. Like they're worried that the enthusiasm won't last by November. It took away from their big win of gun control. That was like one of the top things like. I was speaking to a member who was like, I was literally on the floor about to vote for gun control. Like it was the biggest legislation we've had in 26 years. And nobody's going to ask you about that when you go home to your districts. And it's just, they're both afraid, both sides that like the extremes are going to hijack their messaging because they haven't figured it out yet. And that's also kind of interesting, right? Like 
the country, 70% of the country would like abortion rights to remain, right? So like, how do you even really like, as a Republican party, craft that messaging as well, right? And as Democrats, like, how do you explain that, like, we never did anything to make sure this didn't happen? How do you use that, that like, that energy to change the law and actually get people out to vote without feeling like you're just a bunch of fools. Like there's just so many thoughts on it. I think there's a lot of soul searching that the Democrats are having. And these are Democrats that aren't just like, oh, this is the silver bullet. You know, this is going to save us in the midterms. They're like, "Mm, actually, probably not. And I thought, you know, I thought about it. I was like, four months is a long time from now. What happened four months ago? Russia invaded Ukraine literally to the day that I wrote that. And it's like, we care about that. We know about it. And so many people do. But Ultimately, at the end of the day, I don't think Russia invading Ukraine is something on the top of people's minds right now. But you're not seeing it on the cables anymore. You know, it's just it's just the like the psyche. There's so much. But there's one thing that you remember every single day. And that's like your economic struggles, your inflationary concerns. Yeah, you're looking you're looking at gas prices. You're looking at filling up your tank and it's going to cost one hundred dollars to fill up your tank. You're looking at inflation. Yeah, maybe you can't take vacation right, this summer. Yeah. You know, maybe you're struggling to feed your family. Like there's so many things yeah. that people are thinking about. And abortion is an important issue. But will it end up being the issue in in November is kind of like I don't you know, Democrats are like, maybe this saves a few swing district votes, and you know, but this doesn't mean we're going to like win the House back. The Senate is still in jeopardy. They're like kind of hoping Republicans will take their foot in their mouths, but it's just, it's not a given in terms, and this is cynical, right? But like, if we are going to actually codify Roe versus Wade, then we need Democrats, you know, running the House and in the Senate. I mean, there were some people that were like, maybe there's a, a situation in which we come to a compromise just like we did on the gun gun bill, right? I don't know. That seems pretty far-fetched, but it's it's definitely percolating in the universe out there. Well, and as you point out, in the Republican Party, there's some nuance as well. You have people like Ron DeSantis and Glenn Youngkin who aren't in states where they're going to have, you know, trigger laws where they're going to put abortion at 15 weeks and, you know, maybe a more moderate than some of the other states that are banning abortions completely. And how the Republicans are looking at this politically is also part of the equation for you and your reporting. Ron DeSantis is in a state that swings. I mean, he is in Florida, right? And if he wants to, like, he has presidential ambitions, if he wants to please the evangelical base and, like, try to do an all-out ban in in Florida, like that could backfire before he's up for re-election for governor in 2022. You're not going to win the presidency. And he might actually have a tough re-election campaign. Totally. it's Some of the numbers aren't showing it as a landslide. And Glenn Youngkin, you know, that's Virginia. It's a purple state. You can go too far to the extreme. But when you but this is the thing also the kind of like, like we said, the soft voice publicly, neither of them would ever admit they're running for president. Right. But privately, every decision they're making is to build a model um, to use their states as a model when they run. So like these positions matter. Everyone's watching them. They have their own press corps. The national press corps is paying attention to them. So it's like there's just so many things that are being considered. And also you're just seeing the bench of Republicans grow every single day as Donald Trump appears to be weakened. He's desperate to just clear the field out and claim that he's running. On the other side, you've got Joe Biden and it's like, the age thing is really dogging him. I mean, there's it's just it's just hard. There's no question about it. I mean, you're you're reporting about Biden and the internal debates inside the White House about, you know, how he's going to run, when he's going to run, if he's going to run. 
Tell me about that. How do you, as a reporter, everybody, this is the question everybody wants to know. Is Biden running? Is he too old? Is he going to be too old? And I want to talk about the big elephant in the room in a minute, too, which is, of course, Donald Trump. Totally. Okay. So it's a good question. So it's like the one of the uh, senior administration officials I spoke to was like, listen, we are running for reelection. We are building the infrastructure on the ground. We are we are going through all of the motions to run for reelection. Do they also acknowledge that at any point their boss can say we're not running for reelection? Sure. That is not out of the picture. Biden wants to run. That is his gut. But the at the end of the day, too, the party is really not happy with him right now. There are questions about his age or question, like the economy, his polling numbers. You know, he may want to run and he may feel that way. But like, who's to say he won't get primaried, right? There's also just like, okay, he wants to run if Trump runs, right? But what if it's DeSantis who's 43 up against Biden? That's right. You know what I mean? Like, is that really the Democratic Party's best pick? Maybe he can beat Trump again. Sure. But like, is that is, is, is everything about Trump? Like maybe Trump will come out of the gate as a weakened candidate anyway, and it won't even be as much of a nightmare as a, a boogeyman as the Democrats think. Not just that, but like Biden has always been a family man. After Bo died, he decided not to run in 2016. He waited a long time. He Even entering the race this past time, he waited a really long time. He's just kind of like one of these ponderous people who takes a long time to make decisions. He listens to Jill Biden, right? His wife. His children have been through a lot. Hunter is under investigation right now. Who's to say he won't be indicted? That's another issue. You know, you've got his daughter's diary being robbed and being used against her on all these talk shows. It's extremely painful for him. The kids feel like he's done so much and that he's not getting enough credit for it. So, like, you just have so many family dynamics. And I don't think you can underestimate how much Biden's family means to him. On top of the fact that you've got a party that, for the most part, has sort of turned on Biden. Unless he can turn it around I don't know. It's it's going to take a lot of discipline inside the Democratic Party. I mean, people are already saying publicly that they don't think he should run, that he should he should follow. These are lawmakers. These are party leaders. These are allies of him. These are people in the White House that won't say it publicly, but they believe that maybe it's time to pass the baton. Like you're not you might not be the only person who could beat Trump. Who are the people that these inside Democrats like if they don't think President Biden should run for your election. It sort of seems like there is no front runner to take his place. And that's precisely the problem. You nailed it. There's just no bench. Is that because everybody in the Democratic Party assumed that Hillary was going to be president for eight years? Probably, I think. I think that there was a lot of hope pinned on Kamala Harris. Yeah. Her polling numbers are really low. I think that the Democratic Party maybe needs to lean more towards governors. They tend to do well. You know what I mean? They have executive experience. Yeah, there's some good ones. Right. We got Mitch Landrieu, who's interested. Phil Murphy had a tough re-election, but he's certainly interested in New Jersey. Gretchen Whitmore. Like, there are a lot of people who are... I saw a little tidbit that Gavin Newsom is playing some of his campaign material for, for re-election or, or something like that in Florida. Yeah. Why is a California um, Democrat buying ads in Florida? In the corridors of power, it's being discussed. Now, I've heard like Cory Booker has said he doesn't want to run against Kamala, but I don't think a lot of other people are going to clear the fields for her either. I read in the Times this morning that Bernie said that he wasn't going to run against Biden. Fine. 
but I don't know that that means everybody else is like is going to clear the field for him either. It's it's really gonna. Here's what I predict, and I could be wrong, but if it's if it's as much of a shellacking in Obama, President Obama's words, this midterms, I think there, this midterm is going to be a lot of pressure on Biden to either announce that he's running for re-election or not, and it's going to be in that window. And he's traditionally somebody who, you know, some people say he drags his feet. Other other people say he's just really deliberative and cautious and careful. He, you know, he may not announce right after the midterms whether what his intentions are. I mean, he's indicated his intentions are that he's going to run. So yeah. from his point of view, he doesn't need to say anything else. Exactly. He's already made it clear he's running. But like they haven't had the uh, official announcement for, of the campaign. They're working on it. You know, they haven't th- picked a time or place. They don't want to announce before the midterms, which is fair. But I just think like Biden may want to run. That's all he's ever done, right? But like, I don't know that the party wants him to run at this point. It's interesting. The party, as you point out, hasn't really gotten itself unified together. But it could happen very fast around a Gretchen Whitmer or a Gavin Newsom or even a Mitch Landrew, who I love because I went to Tulane. Everybody who listens to this podcast knows that. And right. former mayors of New Orleans are pretty cool guys. And Mitch Landrew is at the top of that list. But, you know, you look at a ticket that could include Gavin Newsom and, you know, Gretchen Whitmer or Gretchen Whitmer and Mitch Landrew. It's pretty, pretty good. Yeah. If you're if you're, you know, looking for youth and vigor and people who have experimented in the states. Totally. And he's kind of and like cities. a good old boy, right? He could he could maybe win over some southern Republicans, Democrats. He's kind of seen as having that appeal. I know there's a lot of excitement around Mitch Landrew. Governors do well. They have something to talk about. Do you know what I mean? They have models. Yeah, sure. They have things like these le- I think it's hard for someone like I know Cory Booker talks used to talk a lot about Newark and being the mayor, that was interesting too with Mayor Pete. But like once you're in the Senate, it's like nobody like nobody really cares about that legislation you passed or, you know, it's just <laughs> it's like it's really hard to sell. But when you're governor and you have a press court at your command, you can change the news cycle. You can show that you're the executor taking charge. And often in these like micro state experiments, they work and it's something to talk about. I wonder if the Democrats should lean into more of a governor, a moderate governor, rather than go with like a legislator, because that's what I felt like. I felt like the field last time was pretty heavy on legislators in 2020. That's right, because you had Biden, Bernie, Liz, Amy, Klobuchar, Beto, Kamala. It was like no one really Corey. I mean, I guess Newark. Then you have Mayor Pete and everyone's like, well, he did some really good work there, but he was still just the mayor. Right. Yeah. So and he's young. But then that, that goes back to kind of the point I made yesterday with Roe versus Wade is like some, the Democrats don't really spend enough of their energy attention on local state and local as much as Republicans do. Well, that's a really good point. The Democrat and, and you make that point that the Democrats weren't as interested in local offices as Republicans have been over the past few decades. Totally. But those local school board people become state legislators, become state senators, become congressmen. You know, they they have their AGs, their governors. There you go. The Republicans have the biggest freaking bench in the world. They got a farm team that works. And that's why yeah. you see, you know, a Ron DeSantis come out and people say, oh, well, he's just picking up on Trump's, you know, MAGA. Well, actually, you know, to your point, here's a governor who, you know, agree with him or disagree with him. This is a competent guy who seems to get things done in Florida, whether you agree with him or not. Yeah, exactly. And that's, I mean, you know, he was called Death Santis at the beginning of coronavirus, and now he's praised for it. It's kind of amazing how those things change. 
it is amazing. Yeah, DeSantis also is in a position like where Trump is sitting on, you know, firing off messages on Truth Social that no one's watching or whatever reading. I don't even know how that thing works, but um, I guess it's Twitter. But it's not, he's not seen as having any power. But then you see Ron DeSantis picking fights with Disney World. You know what I mean? And it's like... (laughs) You know, the Goliath and uh, it's just he's he's kind of like he's getting all this great press. Uh, he's got his issues himself. He definitely doesn't have the magnetism of Trump. And he's not he's not as charismatic. In fact, he's like quite prickly. But like he's created a bit of a like ethos around him. Now, a friend of mine and very good source reminded me that, yes, governors do well in the beginning, but they're often untested on the national stage and they're not the best at debate. Like there was a lot of enthusiasm for Chris Christie at one point, Rick Perry, for um, sure. Scott Walker. It was going to be like President Walker, right? So there was so much enthusiasm. I guess George Bush was a governor. So that's an example of a Republican that was, but like Reagan as well. And they were governors of big states and they had great big names uh, attached to them. So that, totally. that certainly helped. Totally. Exactly. So it's like, they were like, don't get so hyped up on the governors. You might, things change, you know, you never know. Like nobody knew that Obama was going to be the president <laughs> if you, you started in the, you know, the beginning of that cycle, 2008. Again, people thought back then it was going to be Hillary. Yep. And then exactly. it was Barack Obama. But Let's talk about the big kahuna himself. What's going on with President Trump? He, you know, we're talking about him every day, whether he's on, you know, widely read social media or not. He still commands a bunch on the world stage. We even know and people have said on this podcast that, you know, our European allies, you know, when it comes to things like Ukraine, they're waiting to see what happens with the next administration. They're, They're looking past what we have right now to the next election. They've experienced the whiplash of the political winds of the American public and like they're preparing. I remember that I was based in Brussels right before President Trump was elected. I was covering European Parliament and European Commission. But like once it happened, I checked back in and they're like, we have to prepare that America will not always be the leader of the free world because of what happened with Trump. Like we have to create our own strength. We need our own security partnerships and alliances. We need to we need to, even if it's not Trump, it could be another Trump light, you know what I mean? And NATO, and and it's like the Western alliance isn't quite as strong in a lot of ways. Although Biden has done a really good job as a statesman, which he's always been great at sort of fixing that, right? But there's still yeah. a lot of skepticism. There's still a lot of concern. They don't know if he's going to be there next time. No. And they're, they, they realize like there's, the American electorate is not something they have any control over. And... They can give the president some wins maybe here and there, but foreign policy, I don't think it's front of mind. And if anything, there's there's one piece of foreign policy that everyone thinks about Biden, it's Afghanistan. Do you think people still think about Afghanistan as an unforced error? It feels very far away, although it happened right around this time, right? Yeah, that's right. I think about it. I don't think it's front of mind. I think it was a disappointing mark on... Biden's presidency because he was supposed to be the adult. He was supposed to be the competent one, you know, after dealing with the chaos of the Trump presidency. And yet what Americans were seeing was sheer chaos. And I think it was really demoralizing for a lot of people, who, especially military families. Think of how many men we lost. I do think it's maybe embedded in the in the caricature or the idea of the Biden presidency 
because he doesn't have a lot of other wins to speak of. Infrastructure deal was huge. Like, I still think that, like, they should have just been banging the drum for infrastructure and not coupled it with BBB and not gone so aggressive with this, the biggest social spending program since FDR. Like, if he could have said, like, hey, remember Infrastructure Week with President Trump? I did it. Yeah. Like, I actually made Infrastructure Week happen and just took bites of the apple instead of trying to get a whole fruit basket through a, a very divided Senate. Well, and he brought us out of the pandemic, you know, or or into a much better footing, but it doesn't seem like he can run on that. Yes, I agree. He did. But I also wonder how much of that was him and how much of it was just like the natural evolution of the pandemic. Like, you know, we're I've gotten COVID twice. Like I just accepted that COVID is going to be a part of life, right? Like getting a cold. You get the vax. Yeah. I think he helped, but there's still a big segment of society that doesn't want to be vaxxed. I just think the the virus has become less virulent, right? There's mass yeah. herd immunity, which as they said would happen. There's vaccines that are being administered. And so yes, people are still dying and there are going to be upticks and downticks. And we've sort of accepted that when there are upticks, we'll wear masks again. And when things are down, we won't wear masks. And this is just life. And we have to get back to normal. And I think he did a good job of helping people get back to normal. At the same time, like his inner circle's terrified he'll get COVID. <laughs> right as they should be right as we all should be it's yeah, not the same yeah. getting covid even with all the vaccines in the world you know when you're in your 40s and 50s as it is when you're almost 80 although i do know people who are in that age group that have gotten covid it was hard but because of boosters and vaccines they survived and i'm sure biden would survive as well yeah i mean my my dad got it and he's biden's age and it, it was amazing he basically had a little sniffle and, you know, the Regeneron helped and he was absolutely fine. Thank goodness. Totally. Totally. You know, so yeah. we're, we're, we seem to be in a good place. And but it, but it'll be interesting to see whether voters really attribute that to him or anybody or just to the, as you said, the natural course. Now, what do you think? You know, we talked about Biden running or not running. What about former President Trump? Is he running? Yes, I've heard from like literally everyone close to him. And I, I understand that it's for them, it's advantageous to say he's running because it, especially those on his payroll, like it just gives them more power and relevance. But like he really wants to run for president and he wants to announce now because he wants to clear the field. He's feeling very threatened from DeSantis, from others. The January 6th hearings, not great for him. A lot of people in the party, donors, tired of him. They think he's just, his shenanigans are just, they're just over it. And so that is something that is on Trump's mind. He's also not doing a lot right now, except obsessing over it. You know, I was talking to one of his like aides um, who's on his payroll and I was like, literally like, when is he running? When is he going to announce that he's running? And he's like, oh, I don't know. Check Truth Social. Maybe he's done it right now. Like there's no, <laughs> you know, they they're preparing the books and they're getting ready for it. But it's it's on him. It's on his whims. And he's sort of he's impulsive. He falls his gut and he's feeling a little desperate right now. So I think from what I've heard, it could be this this July, like it could be as early as this July that he announces that he's running for reelection. If he announces, does it really clear the Republican field? I don't think so anymore. Yeah, I think that they would like to think so, his people. But I don't think it does anymore. I think it makes it harder for someone like. Ron DeSantis, who has to run his reelection. I think I know that from what I've, from talking to Trump insiders, like he's going to pit people, donors, supporters, 
and say like, it's me or Ron basically and make them make that decision before Ron can even announce, right? Um, yeah. Then also Trump has been on a endorsement spree. And so all of those people who he just endorsed will be asked on the campaign trail, are you going to support Trump for president? And what do you think they're going to say? They're going to have to say yes. He, they just got his endorsement, right? Yeah. So there'll be a chorus of people saying Trump for president, Trump for president, exactly what he wants. But if he waits too long, you know, there'll be a field. And it's not going to be the same field that it was in 2016 when he was the only one talking about immigration and the wall. And, you know, people were still playing by a different rule book. I think he has a bunch of his own disciples on that stage who believe all the same things as him. So it's going to be really hard to debate on policy. Do do you think Democrats hope that he announces soon, Trump? Democrats don't know what to do. I actually think that they overhype Trump and his power and like how how much of the electorate he really has. Like back to my mom, she's like, I will never vote for him again. She's horrified by January 6th. And the, a lot of the focus groups show that people who abandoned Trump after January 6th, they are not coming back. You know what I mean? And um, that's yeah. women. They, you know, Trump is, as much as he's loved by his base, he's also hated by some moderate Republicans now. I almost forget what the question was, but the Democrats are terrified of Trump. But, they, but Biden believes he's the only person who can beat Trump. I think the Democrats don't think Kamala could beat Trump, but I'm sure there are other people on their bench, whatever that is, that could. It's just. It's a fascinating discussion that we're going to keep having. Totally. totally. And, until we really iron it all out. Yep. Well, Tara, I want to ask you, you know, among the many things you do, you're also involved in documentary work. Mm-hmm. You have a new documentary out called Dr. Delirium and the Edgewood Experiments, where you explore medical experimentation happening at the Edgewood facility in the 50s through the 70s. Tell us about this story and how you got into it. It's really interesting. It's a really horrific story. It's like one of the darker chapters of our history. Absolutely. This was around the time that Sidney Gottlieb, when he was running the CIA, was testing, you know, psychedelics like LSD and even some harder ones like BZ. It's a kind of drug that like even street people who are taking drugs on the street wouldn't want to take it. It's just such a bad trip. They were trying to use this to see if they could use it as chemical warfare, mind control, just like this was part of the height of the Cold War movement. They feared that that the Russians were going to get ahead of them on this sort of on this on this game. And so there were a lot of people that were unwittingly abused, in my opinion, with these tests and not even in my opinion, in their opinions as well. This documentary on Discovery Plus has lots of recently declassified videos. We watched the declassified videos with the test vets who underwent these experiments. And it's really shocking to see what they went through. They were in gas masks. They went into gas chambers. They were exposed to drugs that left them in a state of delirium for weeks, months. One of the men, Private Sidrosny, I mean, he had such a mental breakdown from the exposure he had to hallucinogens and psychedelics that he ended up killing his wife and himself. So many of these men have suffered so much because of the experiments. And for so long, it was a secrecy oath that they signed. They could never speak about what happened to them, not even with their doctors. These were enlisted men? Yes, they were servicemen, enlisted men. Some of them decided to go to Edgewood just to like not do KP duty or, you know, <laughs> others were wanted to break from Vietnam. Um, and they were there for about two months. And this is this Edgewood arsenal. It's a head of chemical engineering for our army right outside of D.C. And they were just being tested on gruesome experiments. And they just really want recognition at this point, these vets. They want medical VA benefits as well. And they just want people to say, like, listen, 
we acknowledge what you did. This was a sacrifice. And we're sorry that we ignored you for so long. There was no follow-up. There was no like care to make sure that these men were psychologically okay. I mean, they weren't even told the kind of drugs that they were given. That's the other part about it. They thought they were there to try like to test chemical like masks and just just sort of like protective gear from different elements. They didn't know that they were going in there to have their brains poked with basically. And the worst part about it, which is what we really explore in this, is that after the Nuremberg trials, a lot of these Nazi scientists were in very high demand, not just from Americans, but from the Russians. And we had a program called Project Paperclip where we recruited doctors who were tried at Nuremberg for their atrocities during World War II. And some of them were brought to Edgewood Arsenal. And they were actually running this program and conducting tests on some of our own servicemen. Like these are kids in their 18, 19, you know, 20 years old being used as human guinea pigs. It's, it's really, it's really, it's really sad. And it's only recently come out that, the, that they've endured so much. So I would highly recommend, obviously I recommend it because I, <laughs> I worked on it, but it's called Dr. Delirium and the Edgewood Experiments. It's on Discovery Plus. And I'm hoping that this, this show really helps these men process what they went through and also get the recognition that they deserve from the government for their sacrifice. Well, I'm hoping our listeners check it out. And I'm also really highly recommending that you check out Tara and her colleagues at Puck. I'm better informed because of it, and you will be too. Tara, thank you so much for coming on today. Fascinating discussion as always. Can't wait to have you back. Yes, thank you, Andrew. This was great. Can't wait to be back. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 